Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So when I was then in the comedy clubs and going like, oh, can't we play like a different game? It suddenly occurred to me that this was just like sitting in the hallway at the hospital thinking, can't we play a different game? and never suggesting a different game. And it just came to me like, if you want it to be different, it's you, you're the one. If you want it to be different, you're gonna have to make it different. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you're having a great week. So excited for part two of two with Beth Lapidus. You're going to have a great time. She is an inspiration, a powerful woman who seems to have done it all and has provided a loyalty and a dedication to her brand like no other person I've met in a long, long time. Before I get started, I'd like to let you know that you can reach me at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or at my website at BarryKatz.com. And I wanted to thank you so much for everything you do to support this podcast. Please know that I really, really appreciate it. Sincerely, truly. And when I think about Beth Lapidus, I think about the brand Uncabaret, a brand that has been going for almost three decades. Something that has tremendous respect. People love this brand. People love these shows, and she created something that is so special and so unique that no one could ever do anything that could ever compare to this kind of show or brand. I've been to so many of these shows. I have loved watching her from afar. I've loved watching the shows, and even though, admittedly, it is not my specific lane and not the lane that I travel in, in terms of the type of comedy that I normally go see. Beth always presented such an incredible safe environment for everybody to come there, speak their mind, enjoy themselves, and take people's breath away with extraordinary content. And when you can do that for so many years and garner the respect of your peers, so much so 
that you get to be on so many television shows, have so many books written about you, create so many articles, be a guest on so many different respected television shows, and work with some of the greatest artists in the history of our comedy business. Everyone from Bob Odenkirk and Patton Oswalt and Margaret Cho to people like Jennifer Coolidge, Sarah Silverman, Kathy Griffin, and Jon Stewart. Just an incredibly special person who created relationships that stood the test of time and still stand the test of time. People who will go to the wall for her. People that will do anything for her because she went to the wall for them. She gave them the opportunity to speak their mind in an environment where there was no judgment. And I can guarantee you, if you can figure out a way to keep long-lasting relationships for three decades with the greatest people in your profession and keep a brand and a name going with respect for as many years as that, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of wonderful, extraordinary career that Beth Lapidus has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Let's go way back. Take us back to where you grew up, what your household was like, what the financials were like for your family, and what was your inspiration to getting into the crazy business <laughs> of show? I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and Providence, Rhode Island. Longmeadow, Massachusetts. All right, East Coast in the house, New England. And I grew am Jewish and grew up in a oh. Jewish, Jewish community. Oh. <laughs> um, my parents were junior high school sweethearts. It was a very, it wasn't arty in my house at all. They did love comedy. I wanted to be an artist. I didn't really want to be in show business. I had the idea that I was going to grow up and be an artist. And that is what happened. But so let's see, the, just to stick with New Haven, middle class, sort of a development. I just was hungry to get out. I mean, the, my main experience of that time in my life was like, when will my real life start? But I was always writing and I was doing art and I was doing dance and I was, you know, doing a little, I never really wanted to be an actress on stage. I wanted to write and I liked being myself. So I liked dancing and really, I would say there were pictures of me standing though. That's what I say. But I remember also being in bed with my parents and watching the tonight show. And that was very bonding. And I remember standing on the little lip of, you know how you, a fireplace has that little thing and you stand and you do songs with a fake microphone. I remember, okay, here's the thing. I was maybe 10, maybe eight to 10 in there. And uh, I asked for a microphone for Hanukkah. And my parents got the big box. I'm excited. First night of Hanukkah, this is the thing. 
I open it up, Barry, and it's a toy microphone. And I look at them very ungratefully, and I say, what am I gonna, it's a toy, what am I gonna do with a toy microphone? And they looked at me and they're like, what are you gonna do with a real microphone? I was like, I don't know, but I know I need one. It was like this, so pure. And so there was that. I was a sick kid. I think a lot of who I am happened in the hospital when I was five. That's really where it all happened for me. What was wrong? I had a blood disease. I had an immune deficiency, I had an immune thing. It's called ITP and something's wrong with your blood and we don't know what. We don't know why. It's a big mystery, Beth. It's a big mystery. And you feel fine, but your blood's not clotting right. And so from the beginning, I'm like, am I fine? I'm not fine. I don't know. I have a bruise, but I feel okay. So I was really in the hospital and they were really just monitoring me, except for the spinal tap, which I didn't even realize. I just have this memory. I finally asked my dad when I was about 30, I was like, do you think I might've been abducted by aliens? Because I have this memory where I'm like laying on a table and I'm screaming and there's a light above me. I mean, what do you think that was? And he's like, oh, that was your spinal tap. And I was like, oh. Yeah, that's something you want to fill a girl in on. But there was a thing that really led to Uncabaret in the hospital, which was this. At one point, I'm sitting in the hallway and I'm looking into like the ward or whatever you would call it. And there's kids playing doctor. And I'm like, you know what? We're in the hospital. And can we play house? Could we play school? Could we play anything but doctor? And I mean, of course, now I'm like role playing the thing. I get why. But they didn't. So when I was then in the comedy clubs and going like, oh, can't we play like a different game? It suddenly occurred to me that this was just like sitting in the hallway at the hospital thinking, can't we play a different game and never suggesting a different game. And it just came to me like, if you want it to be different, it's you, you're the one. If you want it to be different, you're going to have to make it different. So I think it was sort of that early childhood, which was in Providence. Everything happened to me there that formed me as an artist. I, there was also my first press. I'm on a bed and I'm playing with Etch-A-Sketch and it ran in the Providence Journal. The nurses are all around me and a coist, you know, and all dressed up and in the hospital. I don't know, Barry, it's, you know, it's a lot of attention. I got a lot of attention for being sick. So here I am, a comedian. <laughs> Take our audience through the week before you ever decided to go on stage for the first time and, and what was going through your mind and, and what was your career? I know you were writing. Um, first time at first time as a comedian or first time on, yeah, as I'm a comedian. Curious. I know you were throughout your formative years, you're writing for a bunch of magazines and newspapers like Elle and O and Premier and the Los Angeles Times. But one of the things you wrote, uh, was another great title. What was it? Don't tell me something about a yoga mat. Uh, what was it? Oh, yoga my other car's a yoga mat. <laughs> <laughs> that was my column. And I actually made license plate holders. They, I sold them as merch. Okay. But that all came after perform. I mean, you know, as a performer, I really, you know, I, at Brown, I was, did like modern dance choreography and sort of avant-garde performance stuff. But there was another thing I did at Brown that was, I had a group of friends, my friend group, would meet in this strange, very modern room. They'd built this, it was a, it was a brand new building, new dorm. And there was like a, I don't know, common room and it didn't have anything in it. It was just like a bench around the room carpeted with rheostat lighting and nothing except a hole in the wall, like a window into a hallway, not outside. So we had this ritual where we would go, oh, it's a, and we would call it the funny room. 
We go, funny roommate, funny roommate. At dinner, somebody would steal a Boston cream pie and we would go to this room and everybody would sort of gather and was, you know, an open group. Like you say, it was an open group. Whoever would show up would show up. We had a core group and we get stoned. And then somebody would start this chant. Oh, great pie. Oh, great pie. And then the pie would arrive. You know, somebody would have stolen a pie and then one spoon and we would take one bite at a time and pass it around. Now we're high. We've had the pie and there's the window. And we would just start doing shows in this window. And it wasn't a whole theater group. I mean, there were a couple of us that were theatery. And then there were some people that were like biology majors and, you know, journalists, and we would do these crazy shows. And that really was probably the most uncab thing that I did before uncab. Just this really pure trying to make your friend group, you know, hysterical in a formal way, not sitting around talking. So there was that and, and the choreography. And then I went to New York and I started doing performance art and I was successful at it. I had got NEAs and I toured and I did the kitchen and I, you know, it was, it was a thing. And I performed at Washington Square Park and, you know, that's a whole story. And I had big books. And anyway, there was a night I was walking along in New York and I thought I had this thing and I was like, life is like this. And I was like, you get old, you're about to die and you get it. Like that must be what happens. And either like that's hilarious or it's tragic. Like you get it and then you die. I mean, who knows if that's the truth, but that's what I thought at, in this moment in my early twenties. And then I thought you get to pick, you get to pick whether you think that's hilarious or tragic. And then I picked hilarious because who wants to live a tragedy? And then I thought, if it's hilarious, then why aren't you making funny work? If you think that life is hilarious, you're going to have to like really get in alignment with that. So my work at that time was sort of funny for performance art. It was funny. I was doing it to be funny on purpose. It had evolved to that point. But then at a certain point, you know, the art world, it's like you can only be certain amount of funny. Then they're like, it's not art anymore, Barry. It's just like, that's not art. It's funny. So then I didn't really leave the art world, but I started working in, it was really scary. I mean, if you want me to take you to like the first time in a comedy club, I'd already was working. I was on the road. I was getting good reviews. I was doing, you know, 60 minutes at a time. But that first night in a comedy club was petrifying to stand in line and get a number and decide that's it you're gonna go try to be funny for strangers and that's what it is you're just gonna be funny but I the first time I was I can't remember if this was first or after that but right near the beginning I was doing a show at, in Boston at the Institute for Contemporary Arts I'd gotten a giant glowing review in the Boston Globe literally said everything she says is funny and the guy who was booking it said why don't you try it? why don't you go over at the comedy club I'll make a call and go do set over there I was like, yeah, sure, that's a great idea. Makes a call, go do the set. All right, in retrospect, let me tell you, it was Boston in the 80s on a Saturday night. I had never done a set in a comedy club. Which comedy club was it? I wish I could remember. I don't know, the Boston Comedy, comedy Club. I mean, it was one of the big comedy clubs. It was, a, it was, was like- it a Comedy Connection on Warrington Street? I, you know, I'll, I can't tell you for sure. It could have been. All I can tell you is this. 
I get on stage with my quirky performance art. Now, do you remember any of the comedians on stage with you? I don't remember one. They might remember me because this is what happened. I'm doing my sets. I'm trying to make it funny. I'm not really having flop sweat. I'm seeing people aren't laughing that much. I'm just kind of working on it. I don't like that the women are looking at their dates to see if it's funny. I'm not happy with a lot of what's going on, but so I plow on. Well, I get off stage at a certain point. They're all standing backstage, every comedian. And they're looking at me with their just jaw dropped. And they look at me and they go, didn't you see the light? And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of lights. I mean, I literally didn't know what the light was. That's how green I was. And it was a Saturday night in a comedy club. I got paid. I mean, I got paid like, you know, a hundred and some. I mean, a guy's paying me with a mullet. He's a mullet and he's paying me. And he says, yeah, you know, I'm going to uh, quit your day job. Like, this is, uh, no, this is not for you. But I, that did not dissuade me. I was like, oh, really? Not for me. Well, I think it is for me. And when I finally did learn what the light was and I learned what had happened that night my god i've been humiliated my whole life about that and if any of you are listening who were in the house that night i'm very sorry for i'm very sorry <laughs> but then so but then i'm like sort of like i'm gonna do this and then i'm starting to do open mics in new york i did the, i think the comic strip was my first open mic and i worked and and i got past there lucian liked me he, he was the creative director there who also gave the light the light, for those of you who don't know, is the proverbial stand-up comedy message to get the fuck off stage. <laughs> uh, this is wonderful. So, uh, tell, me, <laughs> tell me what happened in your life that made you make the decision to do your first uncabaret show, name an uncabaret and book the show and tell us about your first show ever and who was on it and what was happening and was it successful or, you know, all those kinds of things. Okay. Well, this story of the women's building and coming up with this title, you know, unhomophobic, unxenophobic, unmisogynist, uncabaret. And then I did do it. I mean, I did it for that audience. One of the huge parts of Uncabaret is that there was an audience that was hungry for comedy that wasn't being served. But as a businesswoman, you have to find a place. You have to convince the owner. What night can you give me? Would you take the door? You take the bar. I'll take the door. Right. But I did it there at this sort of performance art space where I had was doing Globomania. Okay. Once I said to them, I'm going to make you a show when they were like, we can't go to the comedy clubs because they make fun of us. And I said, I'll do show on a gun xenophobic and misogynist on cabaret they're like oh my god great so i did it right there for this audience who was already hungry was i don't it, remember did you named on cabaret for that first show yeah and it was on cabaret i mean and it'll be on cabaret and they were like great on cabaret let's do it so what day of the week was that what day of the week yeah do you remember i don't remember i think it was probably a weekend was it successful the first show or were yes you... wildly successful it was a mess i didn't really know i was just do stuff you can't do in the comedy clubs and the only person i can remember i mean you know if i i really wish i knew more but i know judy toll did it and she was doing her andrea dice clay thing i mean you know of all things that's by the way that's why i mentioned it early on in the podcast i didn't want to call her out on oh, okay it. but she was allowed to do that there well, she was making, she actually didn't do, once we figured out what Uncabaret was, she never did do it there. I mean, she did it there at the beginning and hers was obviously a spoof because it was a spoof of him doing it. 
I didn't 100% love it. I'm not the biggest fan of characters, but I loved Judy. And so, all right, so you give me a little elbow room. It's the first show. People, I don't know what it is. People are doing drag or I don't know what. People are just experimenting. At the very beginning, it was just experimental freedom. We did a few shows there. They lost their funding. And then we moved it to Highways, which is out near where you are now. So that was a performance art space. And we did late nights there that were just me, Judy, and Taylor Negron. We did a few months of late night Saturday nights that were a big hit and the crowds were really coming and it was really there. I think of the women's building as insemination. I think of the highways as a gestation period. And I think of Luna Park as really the birth. And in this gestation period, really the DNA of Uncabaret was formed. And you'll see it in the shows today. We have storytelling, we have big thinking. Judy was genius and really a groundbreaker in confessional comedy. You had never seen anything like the way Judy confessed to everything in her life. If, I, if Judy would sit, come into a show and she'd go, how's the crowd? And I'd go, oh, it doesn't look good. I mean, I think it looks like a late night. She'd go, oh, good. It's going to be a great show. I mean, for Judy, one person would be perfect. Every single person who she ever met thought they were her best friend. And that's what she was so good about the intimacy. And she really helped us develop that. Taylor with his sort of da-da LA stuff. And what a genius storyteller he was. And also he had sort of old world kind of, I want to say hacky but I don't want it to sound pejorative. I mean, he loved a joke and that wasn't gone from Uncab. It's just that you didn't want it to be rote. So, and then I had these big ideas and also sort of poetic. And, and so the three of us did these shows at Highways. And I think over the course of those months of doing these late night Saturdays, we found that Uncabaret was a thing. Then I had stopped because I ran my campaign to make first lady an elected position. You might have seen me on Larry King. You might have seen me. You didn't. You saw me on CNN, though. People Magazine. It was a crazy fun ride. And when that was over, then Luna Park was opening and they called me to see if I wanted to do a show. And I had on Cabaret in mind. It wasn't undeniable yet, but I said, you know, I've been doing this project called on Cabaret. I'd like to do that. It's, you know, comedy and the guy who ran Jean-Pierre Baccaro, who was a great club owner and really knew the business and was really impeccable at it. And he said, oh, no, no, he was Parisian. I said, will it be funny? And I was like, no, Jean-Pierre, it's not gonna be funny. We booked it for three Sunday nights and it ran for seven years. So that I think might answer some of your questions that you asked. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. 
Six degrees of separation. I'm going to name some names. Okay. Tell me what comes to mind. Judd Apatow. Great storyteller, innovative. Just he's one of the apostles of comedy. I mean, you know, the first thing you learn about Judd is he has a child or a teenager sat and, you know, transcribed episodes. And that's the kind of work that it really takes. And that's why he's so amazing at what he does. We showed some of his stuff when we did the our side offshoot project called The Other Network. We showed his so-called failed pilots. And it was just so instructional to see, you know, how somebody's so talented and so successful. And he came on and he talked about the process of doing those things. And he inspires me because, you know, those things were so great, but they didn't exactly click. You know, they didn't go if you will. He did and, eight shows in a row that failed. But he's in love with his work and the medium that he works in and the people he works in and his work with Gary Shamling and the way that he connects to the spirituality of comedy. Judd gave me, he ran a room when I was first working in LA. He ran a room in Marina Del Rey and he used to book me in it. Um, and I'm always grateful in that. And I always think of some of the sets that he did at Uncab when we were at Embar. And I'm a huge fan of Judd Apatow's. Jeff Garland. Oh, what a troublemaker. Uh, but I really, what I think of Jeff, uh, I think of pudding and mm, pudding. And I think, of, honestly, he did, he has a story on one of our CDs that's about in Judaism, you, I guess there's a, I don't know this firsthand, but according to Jeff, and I see no reason why he would lie about it, there's a, a Jewish law that you're supposed to bury the foreskin. And yeah. he told a story about burying his son's foreskin in Disneyland. After your child gets circumcised, you, the rabbi tells you to go out and bury the foreskin. Yes. Well, he did it in Disneyland and we have recorded, we have that story on one of our CDs. He's also a, you know, a lover of comedy and the medium. So. Okay. Larry Charles. Oh, wow. I'm so happy to talk about Larry Charles. Well, I see now he's doing all this amazing, radical and progressive posting. And he's such a free thinker. He always inspired me. We worked together very briefly on a crazy idea I had after 9-11 called Sleeping Beauty. And he was very encouraging. And I loved his storytelling. Very iconoclast. I mean, you know, no one like him. And he, I interviewed him about breaking Seinfeld and he really talked about the process of really them not understanding it at the beginning and how they really, you know, kept walking and talking and trying to figure out what it was and what it was like to crack that show. And I love Larry Charles. Margaret Cho. What a goddess. What a goddess. Radical, persistently working, risk taker reinventing brave willing to go out and road warrior in a certain way a freedom fighter and her work with so many communities including the lgbtq community has been so important and i'm just grateful to have had her voice in on cabaret so persistently and still bob odenkirk the master oh god bob he's got a great story in my book about the decision to leave Saturday Night Live and that decision and he takes me and the listeners through that decision and how hard it was and you know he wasn't leaving to go to anything so brave I would say a gentleman an amazing writer and producer and actor like triple threat you know I also when I think of Bob I think of Bob and Naomi his wife who were kind of an uncabaret love story and that makes me so happy to be part of that
Great, great manager. Yeah, great manager. And a great, she's been a great supporter of Uncabaret. And uh, Bob's been one of the, you know, spines. Bob is so smart and really, he told a story about when he learned irony, I remember. Anyway, that's Bob. I love him. Did they meet there? They either met there. I think Naomi had seen Bob there and had in mind that he was the one. I mean, she's named on Cabaret. They've done stories. I've seen things in the press where on Cabaret was named. I'm not sure if they met there or they, I think maybe she, they met at a somewhere else. And then she was like, on Cabaret, or, you know. Michael Patrick King. Oh my God, you're bringing up all people. I love every single person. Uh, Michael Patrick King. Wow, he has done, first of all, of all the people in on Cabaret, wouldn't you think a lot of them would have put me on TV? I think they should have. <laughs> but who's the person who did put I'm me on wait, TV? I'm a waitress number four, anything. Come on, people. John Reed, you put me on TV, and Michael Patrick King famously put me on TV in Sex and the City as the performance artist in the episode where Sarah Jessica Parker meets Barishnikov. I am in love with his storytelling and his expansive worldview. He, you know, he took on cat, he always takes. I mean, he, even when he's done the Zooms a couple of times, he takes it very seriously. He's also very funny, great storyteller, impeccable storyteller, and really, really funny and, and, a, and a truly good friend. Love him. Andre Leon Talley. <laughs> oh, well, all the times we've enjoyed having Andre Leon Talley on the show. Oh, I wish. Wouldn't that be have been amazing? Uh, when he passed recently, I noticed that people were really saying, like, larger than life. And I just thought, no, that is how big life is. Most people are smaller than life. And what an inspiration this man was, you know, in the way he looked, in the way he spoke, in the way he lived, to enlarge and, and embiggen. You know, I think I first heard the word embiggen on The Simpsons. And of course, The Simpsons was floating around on cab. They're sort of our, we're on parallel tracks. They, I first heard that word. They kind of invented it. I think that wasn't in the language, but embiggening, you know, just look at how huge life is and look at how small people try to make life. It's just so big. Big. Beth Lapidus. <laughs> what comes to mind when you say that name? <laughs> is that is that truly what you're asking? Actually, in asking you it that way, <laughs> when I'm actually doing Beth, subliminally, you're saying what makes you you. Oh, what you know? That's funny because that was the theme of my podcast. Clearly, what, what makes you you? What a shocker that I would actually <laughs> do was, research before I interview you. It was too hard. I had to stop doing the podcast because people were like, "I don't know, Beth. I just that's too hard a question." And now I see. I, I it was it was advanced placement. I think what makes me me is I'm both stubborn and go with the flow. There's like a balance of those two things. I would say I'm not me unless there's words, you know, I love writing, I love talking, but also this spirit, this thing of being in the now and trying to get in the moment is very real for me because I, I think like many writers, there's too much in the head. So I'm always trying to get back my laugh. I mean, what makes me me is my laugh and wanting to laugh. And that's kept me going with Uncabaret. A lot of times when I thought it's too hard, I don't want to, why do I have to do this? I've tried to quit on Cabaret so many times, Barry, but here I am. 
you know, so here I am. And it's partly the laugh and partly being an outsider. I'd say a balance of like godmotherism, yogiism, and outsiderism. Those are like a certain kind of triangle that I live in. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. A specific disappointment, not like a general disappointment. Probably the biggest actual disappointment, like I can remember the day, was I had sold a talk show to MTV. It was called The Couch. And it was an innovative format at the time. I think it might still be innovative. The idea was I had been on Politically Incorrect and I loved the green room. I mean, every time I was on that show, I was like, God, the green room when we first meet. I love, could you do? On Showtime, right? Politically Incorrect was on. No, the green room. Oh, that was. But I was just thinking when you were literally a green room, like everyone on the show was in the green room. And I loved that thing of when people first meet, you know, I was like, that energy is incredible. Let's do a talk show where the people on it don't meet in separate, you know, separate dressing rooms. And we've booked people very specifically to be together. It's not about promotion. For instance, in the pilot, we did a bunch of pairs. And I remember what we did, we did Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall and Mike Mills from REM to talk about being one member of a creative team. And it was such a fascinating conversation because one of them was falling apart and the other one stayed, it was all about money. Anyway, we had a lot of different pairs. We had Andy Dick with a guy who had just written a book for the, uh, he had been the president of the Sierra Club called uh, Act Now, Apologize Later. And that was all about apology. It was so vital and so interesting. And anyway, it was announced. Everybody walk around town. Everybody's telling you, oh, I heard just great things about your pilot. So exciting. Oh God, I'm so excited. Everybody's so excited. It was a dream come true. I love talk. And that was one of the things I loved about doing this book was the conversations. I also love the writing. And then it was going, it was in variety. And then there was a call from my agent. It wasn't going and it was just absolutely devastating. And how did I use it? <laughs> and then they did, they, I mean, you know, they went with, they went with a different a guy. They went with a particular other person. And you know, I think, yeah, we owned it still. We shopped it around and obviously it never went or you would have heard of it. I think, you know, the greatest thing about any disappointment like that is you do get over it and you keep going and you kind of start to realize like it isn't ever one thing. I mean, there's never one thing that's going to take you down. You are your spirit. You are your soul. You know, they can't take you down by not doing your show. If it's, you know, it's taken me a long time to get there, but if it was, if it, everything is unfolding in divine and perfect order. So, you know, had that happened, maybe I wouldn't have been able to write a book that is now a book that people say is comforting at a time when people really need the comfort. So it's a long path to how I, I didn't necessarily pivot very easily into the next project, but eventually, you know, I regrouped and uh, did other shows. I think I, oh, the next thing I did, I did end up doing a talk show. I did a radio show for, you may remember, there was a network called Comedy World. And I learned a ton there. Maybe I learned more there than I would have learned for MTV. Maybe I would have done four shows for MTV and I, you know, ended up doing a year of a daily show for Comedy World as well as a show. Uh, you know, we did two shows a day and I learned a lot at that job. Besides your new upcoming audio book, what is your proudest moment in show business? My proudest moment besides my audiobook and being here with you right now? Gosh, 
you know, I think it's an accumulation of those Sunday nights that they all add up and it's almost like a necklace where each one of those nights is a string. But I would say that, that when we did that anniversary, I would say, you know, when I think about it, I was like, well, the Comedy Central show, but there was something about that 25th anniversary show in 2018. If I were going to say a proudest moment, I mean, it's I've had bigger accomplishments, but to be at the Ace Hotel with 1800 people in Los Angeles who had many of them new to on cabaret. It wasn't like everybody had been part of the show over the years. And this feeling that we were coming together in community and that it was vital and still alive. But you know, Patton was on it and Bob was on it and Julia Sweeney was on it, Laura Keitlinger, but also some of our, you know, newer people, Byron Bowers and Alex Edelman. And it was just, it was such an exciting night that there was so much energy in that night. And I guess if I would say, you know, is there pride in energy? I don't know about proudest. I didn't think it would feel like it felt. I really felt like, you know, the LA Weekly put me on the cover and I really felt like may, I really maybe had done that. It sort of sunk in that all these nights that I had kept my head down. You know, I talked to Bob Odenkirk for this book and, you know, and he just really, I have to say it kind of melted my heart. He so gave it up to me and I don't think of, you know, you just, I keep doing the work. So maybe that night at the Ace Hotel and feeling all the love and being able to give the love, that was a really special night. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in New Haven, Connecticut, and just not really having a lot of resources around them, not knowing what to do, how to do it? Yeah. Try to figure out and how do they get to the point where they have the kind of career that you've had? Find a business partner who will take you to, <laughs> no, the, the advice for the young people though. Well, I mean, I did a few things that were, I recommend, you know, I often would go to the Yale art museum and to weird mu movies at Yale. There's always something weird. Find the weird people, find the friends. I mean, I have some friends that I had then that I still know, find the creative people wherever you are, find the people who have a soul that is leaning towards, find the weirdos, find the artists, find the writers, find the tender hearts and, you know, nurture each other, um, get out at every, you know, learn, read. I read endlessly. I just, you can always read, you know, I read so much as a young person, I, I'm envious of the reading that I did when I was that young. And take notes, you know, I journaled. When I went back, <laughs> when I went back to move out of that house, my parents were moving to the Dominican Republic to start working there. And I had to go through everything that I had in a weekend. And I went through my journals. I couldn't even afford Barry to ship them all back to Los Angeles. And I was like, I know I'll stay up all night and I'll read my journals and I'll just tear out the good pages. Like, how do you know what the good pages are? But anyway, this was my insane idea. And I read through my journals and I realized that, oh my God, they're so repetitive. It's like, I want to be free. I want to be loved. I want to be free. I know my boyfriend is gay. Why won't he admit it? My boyfriend is gay. Why won't he admit it? My boyfriend is gay. Oh, why won't I admit it? You know, those are the pages I would tear out the pages where I actually changed and got something. But I would say, you know, be willing to change. And my proudest moments are always like, oh, I actually like changed. Like I actually was like, I have to be a better producer. Oh, I have to be more dedicated to my art. Oh, I have to know different people. Oh, I have to be more humble. Oh, I have to work harder. You know, there's always going to be stuff and go just surround yourself and take action, you know, be brave, just be brave. 
that's the best advice I can give to a young person. Build your life around courage. Beth Lapidus, you're the greatest. I have such a great feeling being across from you. It's the same as it always has been. I'm so grateful that you did this. You're going to inspire a lot of people. Thank you so much. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Barry. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a true delight. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.